everyone, and welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a weekly true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks for joining us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. During today's episode, we are going to discuss the murders of Catherine and Ashley Tafelski and the assault of Andrew Tafelski Jr. and Chelsea Brothers. Catherine Tafelski was 31 years old and her daughter Ashley was 5 years old at the time of their deaths. Andrew and Chelsea were both 3 years old at the time of their assaults. The gruesome murders took place inside of the Tafelski home in Virginia Beach, Virginia in January of 1993. Let's do this. Alright, let's jump right in. Andrew Tafelski Sr. and Catherine Tafelski lived in Virginia Beach, Virginia with their two children, Andrew Tafelski Jr. and Ashley Tafelski. On January 13, 1993, Andrew Tafelski Sr., a Navy commando, was away on assignment and Catherine Tafelski decided to have her niece, three-year-old Chelsea Brothers, spend the night at, at her house with the Tafelski children. Catherine was supposed to take Chelsea to school on the morning of January 14th. However, this never happened. The next day, on January 14, 1993, around 2 p.m., Chelsea's mother, placed a phone call to Barbara Pullman, Catherine Tafelski's mother. Chelsea's mother informed Pullman that her daughter Chelsea had spent the night with Catherine and her children, but Chelsea never showed up to school. Pullman placed a phone call to her daughter's home, but she received an answering machine recording, which, according to Pullman, was, quote, not normal, unquote. Pullman decided to go to her daughter's residence to investigate and figure out why she had not taken Chelsea to school as she had promised. When Pullman arrived at her daughter's home, she found that the front door was locked. A neighbor, who noticed Pullman trying to gain entry to the home, began to help her. As they tried to enter the front door, they heard Chelsea crying. Chelsea was inside the home, but was unable to open the front door because she was only three years old and too small. Guys, how terrifying must that have been for that poor three-year-old little girl? I'm sure she was so confused at what was going on and just wanted someone to come and help her. That just breaks my heart. Let me just say that during my time as a 911 dispatcher, these were probably the most difficult calls. Even when the child didn't have an emergency, just trying to communicate with a small child was not an easy task. I can imagine. But back to the story. Pullman and the neighbor went to the back of the house and discovered that the back door was open. When they entered the house, Chelsea ran to them crying, and they noticed that Chelsea had suffered a facial injury. Poor baby. As a mother, this is completely horrifying. My worst fear is something awful happening to my kids. Pullman and the neighbor began to search the house in order to locate Catherine Tafelski, her daughter Ashley Tafelski, and her son Andrew Tafelski Jr., What they found was a mother's worst nightmare. They found Catherine's partially nude body covered in blood lying on her bed. It was clear that she had been struck numerous times in the head and had been sexually assaulted with some type of object. The white sweatshirt that she had been wearing was ripped in several places and was completely soaked with blood. Can I just say how horrendous it must have been to locate your deceased daughter partially nude? Right, and... As I said, it was obvious that she was sexually assaulted. So not only did you find your daughter deceased, but it's pretty evident that she was sexually assaulted before she was murdered. So that's just got to add a whole other level of horror to it. 
Upon discovering the grisly crime scene, Pullman immediately ran to the kitchen area of the home and called the police. The neighbor continued to search for the children and entered Ashley Tafelski's bedroom and discovered Ashley's body lying in her bed with her hand hanging over the side of the bed with a large pool of blood beneath her. It appeared that Ashley had been struck several times in the head with some type of hard object. A small piece of bone fragment, quote, coupled with hair and blood, end quote, was near the foot of Ashley's bed. Excuse me? What? How can someone do that to a sweet, innocent child? I, that I will never understand. Crimes against children just bother me more than any other crimes. The neighbor then found Andrew Tafelski Jr. in his bedroom, lying in the top bunk bed. He had suffered numerous injuries to his head and face, but was still conscious. After the police arrived at the residence, Detective Sean Hoffman and another officer conducted a search of the area surrounding the residence. A trained dog located a track that led from the rear utility room of the house to a wooded area behind the home. An officer found an old double-barreled shotgun in the woods. And, as it turns out, the shotgun had been removed from the Tafelski's residence and dumped in the woods. The intruder's apparent point of entry was a door located in the back of the Tafelski's residence. The door contained numerous fresh tool marks. These tool marks were of a similar pattern and shape as marks found on the bodies of Catherine and Ashley Tafelski, which led police to believe that the same tool had been used to break into the home and murder Catherine and Ashley. The bodies of Catherine and Ashley Tafelski were taken to the Norfolk Crime Lab for autopsies and forensic examination. Dr. Leah Bush, Assistant Chief Medical Examiner, performed the autopsies. Before I talk about what Catherine's autopsy revealed, I just want to warn you. Catherine's injuries were extensive and this description may be triggering for some. The autopsy of Catherine Tafelski's body revealed the following. Her head had been struck six or seven times with an object of significant weight. Her skull was completely crushed and it appeared that massive force had been applied. Just think about the amount of force it would have taken to completely crush a skull. That is just so savage. I agree. Catherine had marks on her right upper inner thigh that appeared to resemble a belt buckle. Four or five abrasions, two of which contained small lacerations, were present on the victim's right side. She had been raped and sodomized with an inanimate object, which was later determined to be a crowbar. The same crowbar used to gain entry into the Tafelski home. Jesus. This next part is pretty brutal, but I figured it had to be said just to get an idea of how brutal this attack was. The crowbar was determined to be about 30 inches long and penetrated Catherine's vaginal cavity to a length of 21 inches. Jeez as well as caused numerous other injuries to Catherine's organs and body that I won't detail because it is extremely graphic and, to be completely honest, I can't pronounce some of the words. Dr. Bush also noted that either the blunt force trauma to the victim's head or the injury to her vaginal area and its related perforations would have been sufficient to cause death. My goodness, how horrific. Totally. Dr. Bush then performed the autopsy of Ashley Tafelski's body. And... I imagine performing autopsies on children has got to be really hard for the medical examiners. Ashley's autopsy revealed that she suffered massive head injuries that were inflicted by the same object that was used to kill her mother. She had four or five lacerations to her head. One of the wounds to Ashley's head did not break the skin, but crushed the skull underneath. 
Two of the wounds to Ashley's head evidenced markings consistent with the tool marks found at the point of entry at the residence. Dr. Bush determined that the cause of Ashley's death was blunt force trauma to her head. The two three-year-olds were also attacked, but survived. Andrew Tafelski Jr. suffered a double break in his jaw. Oh my goodness. As well as numerous injuries to his head and face. He also had a wound above one of his eyes. Chelsea Brothers suffered bruises to her head, face, and body. Chelsea Brothers told Officer M.C. Stewart that, quote, the bad man had a gun and a dog, end quote. Chelsea stated while being transported via ambulance for treatment of her injuries that she was afraid of, quote, the dog, the big dog. There is a dog out there, out there on the house, on the roof, end quote. Russell Burkett and his parents, Ardith and Lester Burkett Sr., who lived next door to the Tafelski residence, had several large dogs in their backyard that frequently peered over a privacy fence surrounding their property. Numerous police personnel observed these dogs sitting on the roofs of their pens or cages. What a smart girl. Right. It's pretty amazing that a three-year-old remembered that much. As several officers began to search the Tafelski residence for physical evidence, they noticed that a man, later identified as Russell Burkett, looked at them for several minutes before entering his residence. This occurred several times. On one occasion, Burkett began to walk toward two of the police officers, and he was advised to return to his home. Okay, so we know that Burkett was the murderer. Sorry, spoiler alert. But I just find it so fascinating that criminals feel the need to insert themselves into an investigation. Like, why? (laughs) If I committed a crime, especially a murder, I want to be as far away from the case as I could get. Maybe it's just the murderer's sick way to be close to the destruction that they caused and to watch what these families are going through. Yeah, I actually think it's a proven statistic. People involved in the crime often return to the scene of the crime. So, I did a little Googling, and according to an article I found online, quote, some criminals believe that they are smarter than the police and want to watch them try to figure out what happened. Others revel in the chaos and hardship that they cause. Others may be uncertain about what's going on and want to see what evidence is being gathered so they can assess their likelihood of getting caught. And for some specific criminals, it's a demonstration to the witnesses and the onlookers of their power that they can stand there and watch while the police investigate the crime and there's nothing anyone can do about it, end quote. I just thought this was an interesting little tidbit that helped me to understand why some criminals may return to the scene of the crime. Makes sense. Later that day, Detective K.P. Rexrode spoke with Burkett in his home. During this discussion, Burkett said that he was frequently in Mrs. Tafelski's home to perform odd jobs for the family whenever her husband was out of town. Burkett stated that he was outside of his residence around midnight on January 13, 1993, but that he had not seen anything unusual. While searching the home for evidence, a blue washcloth was found by police in the room near Catherine Tafelski's body. Lynn S. Baird, a forensic scientist, examined the washcloth and determined that sperm was present. Robert W. Scanlon, another forensic scientist, determined, via DNA testing, that the sperm found on the washcloth stain was consistent with Russell Burkett's DNA profile, shared with only 7.8% of the Caucasian population. As we've already discussed, the police determined that Burkett was a neighbor of the Tafelskis. Next, we're going to talk about Burkett's apprehension. On January 20th, 1993, six days after the murders, 
Detectives Sean Hoffman and Robert Sager went to the Burkett's home around 2 o'clock p.m. Hoffman and Sager did not go to Burkett's home to arrest him, but to interview Burkett there or ask if he would accompany them to police headquarters for an interview. Detective Hoffman advised Burkett and his mother, Ardeth Burkett, that he would like Russell to accompany him to the police headquarters so that he could help with the investigation. Russell stated that he, quote, didn't have a problem with that, end quote. Hoffman advised Burkett and his mother that Russell was not under arrest and that he was, quote, certainly free to leave at any time, end quote. Burkett rode with Detective Hoffman and another detective to the police station in an unmarked police car. Because he was not technically under arrest, he was neither handcuffed nor restrained, and there was no type of shield in the car. On the way to the police station, Hoffman and Burkett stopped at a convenience store. The officers testified that they would have offered Burkett a ride home had he changed his mind about participating in the interview. The detectives and Burkett arrived at police headquarters about 2.30 p.m. and promptly entered the interview room. Hoffman closed the door to the interview room and informed Burkett that he had done so to ensure their privacy. The detectives did not want the noise in the adjacent offices to interfere with the interview. Once again, Burkett was not restrained or handcuffed in any way. In addition, the closed door was not locked. Hoffman advised Burkett again that he was not under arrest and that he was free to leave at any time should he choose to do so. The interview began about 2.40 p.m. A video audio tape was made of the interview. I tried to find this video online, but to my knowledge, it has not been made public, so I couldn't find it. But everything that I'm talking about now comes from court documents that I was able to locate online. So, this should be legit. <laughs> At 3.20 p.m., the detectives employed the commonly used tactic of false information and told Burkett that the children inside the Tafelski home had seen him in the house on the night of the murders. Burkett denied that he was in the house at any time on that night. At 3.22 p.m., the officers created yet another ruse by telling Burkett that hair samples similar to his hair were found in the victim's residence. After being fed these lies, Burkett admitted that he had been in the victim's residence on the day of the murders. I know police often use the tactic of giving false information and telling white lies, but sometimes it bothers me because... I mean, I wonder if he just agreed to this because he wanted them to leave him alone or... Mm, I'm sure we'll have some cases where we talk about false confessions, but it false confessions always fascinate me because I'm like, I wouldn't confess to something if I didn't do it, but when they're wearing you down and they're... I ain't no weak sucker. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to think that I wouldn't give a false confession, but you never really know. But... Like I said, at first he denied it, but then he agreed. But it was only about an hour after they started interviewing him. So I don't guess it was like your typical false confession where they had been questioning you for hours and hours and hours. Right. With no food, no water, and just wearing well, you I down. Mean, he was guilty, so right. I think they did their job. <laughs> right. Anyway, just wanted to take that little opportunity to talk about false confessions. <laughs> At 3.24 p.m., Burkett stated, quote, I'm going to need a lawyer, end quote. The detectives immediately advised Burkett that he was not under arrest and that he was free to leave at any time if he so desired. So at this point, if he didn't, I guess he couldn't call for a lawyer. I mean, he could have, but he, instead of calling for a lawyer, like, the smart thing on his part would have just been to leave. Right. 
but you know. And it kind of does bother me that he says that they need a lawyer. That he or he says that he wants a lawyer, and they're just like, Continuing. "Well, you're not under arrest. You're free to leave." And then they like, continue found that little him. loophole, right? Because he wasn't being Mirandized, and right, he wasn't under arrest yet. You know, they were just like, "We're just having a conversation, so you don't necessarily need a lawyer." But I feel like he asked for one. They probably should have given one, given him one, or got him, let him call one. I don't know. I wasn't there, so I, I guess I can't really judge. Burkett continued to talk with the detective, stating that on the night of the murders, he had entered the residence when he noticed the rear door had been broken. He stated that he walked in, observed the victims, and immediately left the house. Later, Burkett changed his story and said that he had lost control of his emotions and had accidentally killed the victims. Um, excuse me? Accidentally? From the brutality of these murders and assaults, in my opinion, there is no way anyone accidentally did this he sounds like a complete psychopath right you don't accidentally rape and sodomize someone with an inanimate object (laughs) you don't (laughs) there's no way burkett again stated at 3 36 p.m quote i think i need a lawyer end quote the detectives frisked burkett placed him in custody and detective sager advised burkett of his miranda rights to which Burkett responded that he understood his Miranda rights at that time. But again, he said, I need a lawyer, and they still didn't get him one. Right. I have an issue with that. <laughs> Detective Hoffman re-entered the interview room and began to elicit from Burkett biographical data necessary for booking purposes. Burkett initiated several questions to Detective Hoffman, which did not relate to personal information. Detective Hoffman once again informed Burkett of his Miranda rights. Burkett stated that he understood his rights and he wanted to talk with Detective Hoffman. Burkett continued to talk with the detectives and he ultimately gave a detailed confession of the murders of Catherine and Ashley Tafelski and the assaults on Andrew Tafelski Jr. and Chelsea Brothers. The trial court denied Burkett's motion to suppress the confession, finding that 1. Burkett was not in custody until the police officers asked him to stand and frisked him. Therefore, his Miranda rights did not attach until that time. 2. Burkett understood his Miranda rights that the detective read to him and he was willing to talk with the police and the detectives were placed in a position of asking further questions because of Burkett's persistence. And 3. That Burkett knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waived his constitutional privilege against self-incrimination and his right to counsel. Next, we're going to discuss Burkett's trial. Russell Burkett pleaded guilty in January 1994 to the bludgeoning deaths of Catherine Tafelski, 31, and her five-year-old daughter, Ashley. Burkett was sentenced to death by a judge in Virginia Beach, Virginia. In an odd turn of events, Burkett clapped his hands several times and said, quote, thank you, sir, end quote, to the judge after the death sentence was announced. What? in the world i'm not sure if he thanked the judge because he truly felt remorse for what he had done and felt death was what he deserved or if this was just a ploy to garner sympathy and make people think that he was insane it's a little too late for that homeboy we already think you're a lunatic right i, I just i can't understand someone thanking a judge for sentencing maybe them to he die. maybe he really wanted to, to die because you know, people often say that's the easy way out instead of spending their life in prison. Like, just end me now. Take me out. True. And he did, he raped someone and murdered a child. And those, 
You ain't gonna make it in prison, boy. No, because people in in prison do not, even other inmates in prison do not take lightly to those types of crimes. Right. In addition to the death sentence, the judge also sentenced him to two life terms plus 40 years for crimes related to the murders. Burkett also pleaded guilty to burglary, sexual penetration with an inanimate object, and two counts of malicious bodily injury. William McGraw, Burkett's lawyer, contended his client was mentally and emotionally unbalanced at the time of the murders in January 1993. Then show me the receipts! Right. His lawyer claimed this, but I don't think there was any any evidentiary proof that he was, in fact, mentally ill or mentally They're unbalanced. They're just looking for a scapegoat. Right. Burkett's parents said their son, who lived with them, had been mentally ill his entire life. His mother, Ardeth, testified that he has a history of dyslexia, depression, attempted suicides, and hospitalizations. Certainly his medical history would have surfaced in court, right? I mean, if he was truly insane, they could have proven that, huh? I would I would think so. Um, maybe it was just they were just trying to get him get him off, but I feel like if he was really mentally ill, his parents would have gotten him help and there should have been some record evaluation of that. or something. Right. So I don't know if, if they just threw that out threw there that to out try there to and said that he he was mentally ill but didn't get it. Maybe they thought he was mentally ill, but that never got him any help, so there's just no proof. Well, that's they bad. <laughs> True. Rule number one if you think your child is mentally ill, please get Seek them help. some help. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to laugh and make light of, you know, mentally ill children, but really, if your child is mentally ill, please get them some help. Burkett's father, Lester, pleaded for his son's life, saying, quote, we lost two beautiful people, but killing my son is not going to bring Kathy and Ashley back, end quote. He's right, but his son didn't show his victims, Catherine, Ashley, Andrew, and Chelsea, any mercy. So why should the judge or the courts show him any mercy in sentencing? I really, really dislike when people try to use that. If y'all could see me right now, you would see the serious eye roll going on. Next, we're going to talk about Burkett's death. Burkett came within two hours of execution on June 21, 2000, when the U.S. Supreme Court stayed his execution. However, later that month, the justices decided not to hear his case after all, freeing Virginia Beach Circuit Court to set a new execution date. Ultimately, Burkett was executed a little over two months later by lethal injection in a Virginia prison on August 30, 2000. Actually, the 19-year anniversary of Burkett's execution is a little over a week after this episode will be released. Burkett was the fifth person put to death in Virginia in the year 2000 and the 78th since the U.S. Supreme Court allowed executions to resume in 1976. They only, they only put five people to death in Virginia from January to the end of August? It's kind of high. Is it? Yeah, when's the last time Louisiana put somebody to death? I don't know. Hmm. If anyone wants to do some research on... Uh, the death penalty? On rates of inmates put to death in each state yearly, hit us up. Let us know. Russell William Burkett was put to death after Virginia Governor Jim Gilmore refused to order DNA tests sought by defense attorneys who claimed Burkett was mentally ill when he confessed to the brutal murders. Per a statement issued by Gilmore, quote... There has never been any doubt regarding Burkett's guilt. Burkett has admitted consistently over the last seven years that he committed these heinous crimes 
and he continues to admit his guilt. Given Burkett's continuing admission of guilt, his insistence that no one else was involved in the strong physical and other evidence corroborating his confession, further DNA testing is not necessary in this case, end quote. Which I tend to agree with the governor on all of that, especially because at that point in time in 2000, DNA testing was very expensive. Yeah. So if you truly, if he's stuck to his story the entire time, why would you order DNA testing? So Burkett denied to have the details of his last meal made public. Rude. Which is his right. Rude. But I just think it would have been interesting to read about the contents of his last meal. Yeah, we all deserve to know. Burkett was silent before receiving an injection of lethal chemicals at a state prison about 55 miles south of the state capital of Richmond, Virginia. He was pronounced dead at 9.07 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Now, before we wrap up, we're just going to talk about a few other theories. Um, I read about this one online, but I'm not sure how valid or reliable it is. So please do take it with a grain of salt. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. But that's what theories are, right? And like I said, I don't know how I feel about this, but it's just something I came across and I would be remiss if I didn't talk about it. Deliver the info. Right. So there are people out there on the interwebs. That's a fun word. I've always wanted to use it in an official capacity. Nerd. Anyway, there are people out there on the interwebs that believe that Russell's brother, Lester Burkett Jr., actually murdered the Tafelskis. Say what? So, people theorize that Russell and Lester's parents knew about this and let their, quote, challenged, unquote, son take the fall for their, quote, normal, unquote, son. Because they didn't want to ruin Lester's life. What kind of parent are you? Right. So, they let Russell take the blame. Okay. And, honestly, if you think about it, uh, as I said earlier, the DNA that matched Burkett only matched 7.8% of the Caucasian population, which would likely include his brother. You know, you have the same parents. You have very, very similar DNA. True. So... I don't know if his parents are that smart, though. I don't know. So even if the governor had ordered that DNA testing, you know, maybe they they were in on this little theory, too, and they thought it... His lawyers might have thought it was his brother. But I, I don't... I'm not super into DNA, so I don't know. But I would think that the DNA wouldn't have been conclusively linked to his brother because their DNA is so similar. Right. Being directly related. But as a parent, I couldn't imagine throwing my innocent child under the bus or under the jail in this case, even if it was in order to protect my other child. How do you do that? How do you choose which of your children's lives is worth more? That's just mind-boggling to me. But like I said... All of this is just pure speculation on the internet, and I am in no way accusing anyone of anything, so please do not send me hate mail. Okay, just wanted to add one last thing before we completely wrap up. Um, So we heard about this story from my friend Megan, because Megan and her family moved next door to the Tafelskis in 1995, two years after the murders. Megan's dad was also in the Navy and stationed in Virginia Beach at the time the murders took place, but... Megan's family became neighbors with the Tafelskis in Puerto Rico. At this time, Andy Tafelski Sr. was remarried to a woman named Doreen, and Andy Jr. was five years old. Megan's older sister is also named Ashley, and Andy took an immediate liking to her. 
Eight-year-old Megan often wondered why Andy seemed to favor her sister over her, and that's when she learned about Andy's sister, Ashley, who was killed. So Megan assumes that Andy got really close to her sister, Ashley, because she had the same name as his older sister, Ashley, you know, who was murdered, which that's just really sad. Maybe he was just trying to find a way to cope with it, but that's just really heartbreaking to me. That's the case of the Tafelski murders. Thank you for listening to Homicide Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head over to our Facebook page and leave us a review or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know when an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform and follow us on social media, Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomeGirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions.